Hi everyone and welcome back to the In Our Backyard podcast with your host Jen Galler. And in this episode, I talk with Emily Scar, who's with the Maryland Public Interest Research Group, or PERG for short. Maryland PERG is an advocate for the public's interest. They speak out for the public to stand up to special interests on problems that affect the public's health, safety, and well-being. For every issue they work on, they have a bold vision of how to transform our country. Although they understand that change comes one step at a time, and often powerful interests are standing in the way. The focus is on making a difference for the public, not just making a statement. With Emily, we speak about the campaign she's working on, from energy issues to PFAS contamination in Maryland. She ends the conversation by saying Maryland can be a great state to be leading the change and then for other states to follow. To contact and connect with Emily will be in the show notes below. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm with Emily Scar, who is with the Maryland Public Interest Research Group. And just getting started, could you talk about the Maryland PERG and what you all do? Yeah. So Maryland PERG, we're a statewide, nonpartisan, nonprofit, public interest advocacy organization, and we have grassroots members across the state. Been around for over 50 years. Um, we were first founded by students, actually, um, and now have citizen members as well. And so we work on a wide variety of issues. I've been in Maryland for about the last 10 years, and I've focused my time on issues related to public health, campaign finance reform, toxic chemical exposure in consumer products in our waterways, and energy policy that protects consumers and the planet. Awesome. Yeah. Could you talk about the grassroots and citizen like our membership? Involvement? Yeah. Involvement you all have. Yeah, absolutely. So we have small donor members. You know, we're one of those groups who knocks on your door and asks you to ask you to give our, us money, which enables us to really, you know, both build political power in the state and particular districts. It gives us flexibility in our funding since we're not relying on a small set of large wealthy donors or foundations. And instead, you know, we're really working on issues that we know will be appealing to the the vast majority of Marylanders. And that's really what's been our lifeblood for, for the last decades. We do, of course, also take some large donations and we're happy to work with foundations as well to support our work. But our history really is as a grassroots group with that small membership base and maintaining that as, you know, sort of core to our mission. The amount of work I we do with volunteers varies, I think, campaign to campaign and year to year. We aren't an, a member-driven organization. You know, some groups like Sierra Club, it's the members who set the agenda and really drive the campaigns. We are staff-driven, but we work with activists both within our organization and other organizations to achieve our mission at the same time. Yeah. Does that awesome. answer your question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was great. And you talked about some of the research and work you're doing here in Maryland. And yeah, we'll get back to that. You guys are a part of a national organization in like 30 other yeah. states. How do you all pick which states and like the campaigns you work on in those states? Yeah, well, that's a little bit of a, let me think, how is the best way to answer that question? So yeah, we are a network of similar state-based groups across the country as part of U.S. PERG, as well as the Public Interest Network, which is a family of organizations with similar vision for how to make change in the country. So our sister organization is Environment Maryland and Environment America. We 
do a lot on environmental issues, but often having, you know, an organization that's solely dedicated to the environment makes sense as well. So we partner with them a lot in state and across the country. Which states we're in, (laughs) it's a very, a lot of different factors. I think we would say we'd wish to be in all 50 states, right? You know, the number of states we've been able to be in varies year to year, I think partly based on staffing and fundraising, all the things you would think that it would matter to. Similar to a lot of other organizations that have a national presence, it also varies like how much are we investing in our DC office versus in our state office offices. You should not be surprising with the amount of gridlock we have in D.C. We find that we can actually get a lot more change done at the state level, but obviously the problems we are working on don't end at state borders, so we need to have a presence in D.C. and we are, you know, hoping that we can work on issues that sort of bring the country together across partisan lines. So I think that is one thing we keep in mind. Because You know, while I am in Maryland and the politics in Maryland are different than the politics, say, in Arizona or Georgia, I want to be on working on issues that I think can be successful anywhere. There's obviously a little wiggle room there. So, you know, we make decisions as a national organization as far as what positions we're willing to take on issues. Then what issue mix we're working on on the ground certainly varies depending on the political opportunity in the state, what we think makes most sense in the state, what issues are facing the state, what are the other groups in the state working on, what are the fundraising opportunities, of course. So, you know, it's a little bit of top down and bottom up all at once. Um, we just work hand in hand to make sure that we're being strategic in the positions we're taking and where we're devoting resources. So as I mentioned, right now I'm spending a lot of my time in state on energy policy, which is being worked on a a lot of states across the country. I've always been one of the states that does more on toxic chemical exposure than our partner groups, although we certainly do it everywhere. And then there are a lot of campaigns where I might not be doing a full campaign, but because we have national staff or partners in other states working on it, it makes it easier for me to play a supportive role with legislators or other groups who are doing more on that issue, whether that's zero waste issues, for example, transportation issues, which I don't spend a lot of time on, but um, my colleagues in other states do. So I could be more effective in doing so than if I didn't have that support from out of state. Yeah, that was that a long sense. answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah. And so, yeah, getting back to some of the issues here in Maryland, what are some of the priorities for energy here? Yeah. So there's a few. And I, it's funny, I was working on the campaign yesterday. I'm like, oh my goodness, there's so much going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> One of my priorities is updating and improving our state's energy efficiency program. So our energy efficiency program is called Empower Maryland. It's funded through a surcharge and everyone's utility bills, and it enables the contractors as well as utilities to provide rebates and incentives for folks to make their homes more energy efficient through home energy audits, weatherization support, more energy efficient appliances, et cetera. Because as you can imagine, the utilities don't necessarily have the right motivation to make homes energy efficient since they make money on selling energy. So Mm -hmm. by setting specific goals for them on the energy savings and then providing this financial support, it's a way to, you know, reduce energy use. Obviously, the cleanest energy we use is the energy you don't use at all. So I've been working on updating that program to be more effective for consumers, as well as making sure it's in align with our climate goals. So the way the program was designed, my gosh, 20 years ago almost, 15 years ago, was to reduce electricity use, you know, to, to reduce peak demand, to save en- energy conservation, but not focused on gas consumption or paying any attention to greenhouse gas emissions from energy use. Obviously, our priorities have shifted, right? We need to be moving our homes off of fossil fuels and towards electrification, which will actually increase electric consumption overall. So we're working to tra- change those metrics 
make sure we're incentivizing electric energy use over fossil fuel use while maintaining the focus on deep conservation measures that lower people's energy use overall and thus their energy bills. So that's like my biggest campaign. I'd say at the same time, we're working with our environmental partners to help make our buildings and homes cleaner altogether to get them off fossil fuels, to help our state meet its ambitious climate goals to reduce emissions in the state by 2031 and by implementing a law we passed two years ago. And we're also watchdogging the utilities generally. So some of the biggest utilities in the state have their rate cases up this year. So we're working to make sure that our regulatory agency protects consumers in those rates to keep costs down and make sure our utilities are investing their capital expenses in a way that's good for ratepayers and the planet. Yeah, so important. What are like the primary fossil fuels that um, Maryland uses for energy? Mostly coal and oil. Gas is, you know, I think is the biggest contributor to heating our homes and buildings in the state when it comes to fossil fuels. And so, you know, there's a lot of federal incentives that help people shift that'll be coming online this fall to help people shift to all electric appliances, electric stoves, electric heat pumps, which are vastly more efficient than gas, but also better for the planet and also better for indoor air quality. So if you've been paying attention to the news lately, you may have seen some of the hubbub about gas stove bans. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about helping people voluntarily switch, get rid of their gas stove. There's growing, growing body of research about the impact of gas stoves on indoor air quality and all fossil fuel fired appliances in our homes, right? Gas is off. Gas stoves often have a vent. It's not good enough, but at least it helps get some of that pollution out of the home. That's not the case for if you have a gas fired dryer or or a water heater in your basement, those aren't necessarily venting out. So uh, as a parent of a child with asthma, I know, you know, there's more we should be doing to improve indoor air quality. So really working with folks to make their homes cleaner and help the planet by having our homes off of gas appliances. Yeah. And so you you kind of mentioned like some of the advocacy tactics are like going door to door and talking to state legislators and representatives. So what else do you all do to like get the word and message out to the public? Yeah. I mean, a lot of public education, whether that's through events or media work. So I do, you know, I, I frequently will talk to reporters on issues I'm working on. We do research and release reports. So I released a report last year on the energy efficiency program with the data backing up why we needed to make these changes, do commentary for our media as well. And then, yeah, public education. You know, it depends obviously on the campaign, what level of education you're talking about. But for energy issues, I found people understand global warming, right? They understand some of the need to electrify or the problems with fossil fuels. But when you get into the mechanics of how it works, right? How does the utility company invest in the new pipes they're putting outside our home right now that both lock us into gas for a long time and really cost, repairs will be paying them off for decades after, in theory, we are not even using gas anymore. So really helping draw the line between those environmental impacts, which so many of our allies in the environmental community are explaining and how that actually ties directly into consumer rights and our our pocketbooks and our children's health. Making those connections is something I can do both, you know, one-on-one with groups as well as at events through the media, et cetera. I'm trying to think if there's other main tactics. We do a lot of coalition work in the state and communications, I'd say, whether it's email, social media, I try to have a presence online 
probably not as much of the the grassroots, you know, one-on-one at the farmer's market as I did earlier in my career, but mm-hmm. um, we should certainly, you know, I, I do also work with volunteers and interns that sometimes help make that grassroots work easier. Cause once you've been doing this for a long time, you tend to get sucked into the spending more and more time in meetings or <laughs> meeting with the decision makers and legislators and less time out in the field, which has its pluses and its minuses. But we also do a lot of education of, you know, decision makers, stakeholders, other community group leaders. Yeah, definitely. And could you also talk about the PFAS contamination here in Maryland? Yeah. Are you familiar with PFAS or I should probably give the background since it's still new to some communities? Uh, sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So PFAS are a class of thousands of chemicals that have been used in consumer products and industrial processes for decades. They are effective in their ability to make things waterproof or grease resistant, which is why they have been so popular in products. Folks might be have heard of them and being used in Teflon. When Teflon was forced launched to keep your egg from sticking to your pan. These days they're found in everything from waterproof shoes and raincoats to stain resistant carpets and rugs, dental floss, you name it, it might have PFAS in it. Unfortunately, the chemicals are toxic. The thing that makes them so effective in products is also what makes them potentially harmful to public health. So they're highly persistent and they bioaccumulate, which means once they're in our environment, they're nearly impossible to remove and same with our bodies. So they build up over time and they've been linked to a whole host of health problems, kidney disease, cancer, reproductive developmental issues. Some of the most oldest versions of these chemicals have been restricted, but are still present. And then there are all sorts of new formulations constantly coming online. So we don't know as much as we should about PFAS contamination, where PFAS is found, but every time we test, we, you find PFAS. So in Maryland, we have known contamination across the state. The Department of Environment has done some surveying of waterways and water treatment plants, and more than 70% of our state's water treatment plants have some level of PFAS in them. So we've worked on various policy efforts on this. We worked with the state to ban some of the uses of PFAS that are most likely to cause contamination, so stopping its use in firefighting foam with safer alternatives, removing them from rugs and carpets in the state and food packaging. But there's obviously a lot more to be done. The federal government is working on setting their first ever limit for some PFAS in drinking water. In Maryland, we don't have any limit. We followed the feds, but we could certainly go stronger as many other states have. And the other key thing we're going to need to do is hold the chemical industry accountable for the mess they've made, right? It's going to cost a lot of money to clean up our waterways. And so we need to make sure the polluting industry is helping put the bill so it's not left on taxpayers. Our attorney general did join a lawsuit against some of the chemical manufacturers earlier this year, which is a great step in the right direction. If we need more laws in the books to hold them accountable, we certainly should pursue that. And then I would say... We should just, you know, be stopping, phasing out the use of all PFAS because they are so persistent and so dangerous. It's a, you know, I think it's an issue that people are paying attention to more and more around the country. There simply mm-hmm. is also found PFAS in some fish in Maryland. So there's been, we've issued our first fish consumption advisory. We've seen in other places as well. So obviously as it gets into our drinking water, it works as a way up the food chain. The other place we're concerned about PFAS contamination is on sludge from biosolids. So in Maryland and across the country, we have all this 
human waste, frankly, from our wastewater treatment plants. And the state has encouraged farmers and landowners to spread it as cheap fertilizer on their farmland. So there's been massive contamination issues found in states like Michigan, where there's a lot of chemical manufacturing. Maine had a lot of issues where uh, organic farms were contaminated because of spreading of the sludge. So Maryland has a sludge spreading program as well as a pretty large agricultural community. So that's somewhere we're concerned and we think the state should be doing more to stop the spreading of sludge and make sure we, our land isn't contaminated. Mm, yeah, wow. Again, I have long-winded answers for you. Yeah, no, that's great. So is the campaign kind of more working on like the state level and legislation or is it letting the public know and have safety precautions or is it kind of like a mix of both? Yeah, it's a mix of both. I also did research on this, sort of looking at all the different policy options at the state and national level, which we released, as well as examining what we know so far about contamination. As I mentioned, we passed that big bill two years ago, and now we're really working with the Moore administration, he's the governor of Maryland, to figure out what the Department of Environment can do to set stronger standards on our drinking water and wanting to work with the Attorney General to figure out, do we have the right liability laws in place? This is something we've been knocking on doors on all year, talking to Marylanders about PFAS contamination. They're obviously concerned. We also work really closely with the water keepers of Maryland who, you know, their job is to protect different watersheds. And they've been very interested about this sludge issue in agriculture. So we don't have a bill right now. Our legislative session is until 2024. And our new governor actually took office earlier this year in January with his agency heads taking over at the same time. So we're actually just getting, you know, having those introductory meetings with the new agency staff and our coalition partners, figuring out what can we be done administratively? What do we need legislative legislation for? And, you know, really what's our plan on all three fronts to test for PFAS across the state to limit PFAS contamination, to start cleaning it up, to hold industry accountable, and if wherever we need to, to stop new contamination. So we're sort of working on all five prongs, but not through legislation currently, more through conversations and administrative action to figure out where what we can do without legislation and where we might need additional legislation, as well as supporting national efforts since there is more going on federally, you know, working with our Senator Van Hollen and Senator Cardin to make sure that the Biden administration and Congress are stepping up to the plate. Because this is a, one of the issues I was mentioning where it's incredibly nonpartisan, right? Mm-hmm. Our bill to ban the use of PFAS and all these products passed with unanimous bipartisan support, and it was signed by a Republican governor as one of his top priorities. So we think, you know, obviously everyone cares about the quality of their water and toxic chemicals, you know, hurting their families and their children. Yeah, definitely. And I imagine with the toxic sludge being over like agricultural land, that's going into the water and then going into like food supplies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you wash it our waterway, it's also just the plants that are grown in it are contaminated. Mm -hmm. Or if you have animals grazing in the land, animals could be contaminated. That's been the big issue, as I said, in some of the other states that have discovered this contamination getting into the food chain. And that's why you're also starting to see some of these hunting and fishing warnings. So Maryland has the fish consumption advisory. There's been deer consumption advisories in other states. And I think, you know, there would be more if there was just more testing, right? A lot the states that haven't seen these warnings or haven't heard about contamination, it's probably not because it's not there. It's more likely that it's because it hasn't been tested. So the the places around the country that sounded the alarm first where the places where it had actual chemical manufacturers where they're just literally making the PFAS. North Carolina, Michigan, I said, I think like the Ohio, Kentucky border a little bit. 
there's some chemical industry there. And then downstream, once the chemicals are being used in facilities, you start seeing it. So Maryland doesn't have chemical manufacturing very much, but we do have a lot of industry around Baltimore. So there is runoff from that. The other place we've seen map contamination across the country is around military bases, again, because it's frequent use in some firefighting foams, which are used for practice for military or similarly on airports, it was often used firefighters do training or in case there's fires to practice in case there's a airplane fire. So those are the locations that there is generally known contamination across the country. And then again, the more we test, the more we find. Mm, yeah, so interesting. And is there anything that we missed that you think is important to discuss? I don't know. Was that depressing? But <laughs> <laughs> Well, my follow-up question, <laughs> what do you all hope to see in the future for the environment and just overall, you know, public health? It's interesting as, you know, I've done this work for 20 years now. And as I said, it can get pretty depressing when, you know, especially when you just think of the number of problems that were challenges we're facing, but I'm an optimist. Otherwise, I don't think I could be doing it for so long. Every challenge is also an opportunity and time and time again, you know, we have been able to step up and make progress on all these issues when it comes to protecting our environment, protecting public health, moving the country forward in a positive direction. I think we're in a particularly challenging time right now, but sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. <laughs> so I am optimistic. You know, I have two young kids. And so, you know, the the stakes have in some ways changed for me. I mean, I think that some, makes it harder. You'd think it might make it easier, but I'm optimistic that we can make progress in Maryland. Maryland is certainly one of the states where I feel like we can lead the way and demonstrate to other states what is possible as well as the federal government. So I'm looking forward to the year ahead. Awesome. And yeah, just my last question now is how can people contact or connect with you if they have questions or, you know, want to get involved? Sure. Well, I am on Twitter or X or whatever it's called for. <laughs> it hasn't disappeared yet. That's I'm Emily Scar, S-C-A-R-R at Twitter. You can also find me through our website, MarylandPerg.org. That's Maryland spelled out P-I-R-G.org. Thank you so much to Emily for speaking with me. Anything we talked about will be linked below and tune in in two weeks for a new episode. Thanks, everyone.